from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Maya, Gaylin, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, John, Katoras, Nanette, Rachel, Sam, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, Stacy, and Holly. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, Consider watching on Spotify instead, as they have been kind enough to sponsor me, and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Dean Coral. He's been requested quite a bit lately. He was born on December 24th, 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So let's get into some history for that time. 1939 was a pivotal year for most of the world because it was the year World War II began. Adolf Hitler had already unsuccessfully tried to take over the German government in 1923, but he eventually became the chancellor in 1933. He immediately got rid of democracy began preaching about racial inferiority and his want for a new world order. In 1939, Germany invaded Poland, its neighbor to the east. The United Kingdom and France officially declared war against Germany two days after the invasion. At first, the United States tried to stay neutral, but was simultaneously beginning to arm for war. Also in 1939, after Russia tried to negotiate a land deal with Finland that failed, Russian troops invaded them and began bombing Helsinki, which is Finland's southern capital. As you can imagine, the Finnish were greatly outnumbered, but the Finnish were far better prepared for the wintry conditions, and the Russian soldiers stood out like a sore thumb in their green uniforms. July 2nd, 1939, Hungarian physicist Leo Szilard said it was possible to make nuclear bombs and said the Nazis had already begun researching to develop them, 
So he met with Albert Einstein, and they wrote a letter to the U.S. President Roosevelt to try to warn him of this and advised him to fund and create a department to do the same in the U.S. This letter was instrumental in the creation of the Manhattan Project. The Spanish Civil War ended in 1939 with the dictator Francisco Franco conquering Madrid. Getting away from talk of war, the famous Major League Baseball player Lou Gehrig retired from baseball. Up to this point, he had been an inspirational baseball player but had begun to suffer from several injuries and began suffering from troubling symptoms. He was losing strength fast, so he went to Minnesota's Mayo Clinic, where he was diagnosed with ALS, known now as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is an incurable disease that destroys all motor functions of the brain while leaving the mind completely intact. In Chile, an 8.3 magnitude earthquake hit, killing between 30 to 50,000 people, and in one town, over 90% of the homes were destroyed. This was the deadliest earthquake in Chile's history. The movies Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz premiered in 1939. Both were, and still are, iconic and hugely successful movies. Some other famous people, born in 1939, were Francis Ford Coppola, Lily Tomlin, Ian McKellen, Harvey Keitel, Scott Glenn, Wes Craven, and John Cleese. So this was the global atmosphere that Dean was born into. Dean Coral's parents were Arnold Coral and Mary Robinson. Now, Dean's ancestry has been traced all the way back to the mid-1700s. Those ancestors were born in Pennsylvania, so there was no somewhat recent immigration from another country in his lineage. Arnold and Mary Coral were both born in 1916. I really couldn't find much about their own histories apart from normal average upbringings. The two were married in April 1939. Now, if you do the math, considering Dean was born in December, it would appear that the couple very well might have had a shotgun wedding, as in Mary was most likely already pregnant when they married. Back in that day, that would have been most scandalous. The Great Depression hit a few years before Dean was born. FDR's New Deal created a lot of jobs in the Fort Wayne area. There was new construction of parks, bridges, viaducts, and then modern sewage treatment facilities. So the town Dean was born into was in a bit of a boom by the time he was born. Arnold worked as a mechanic in a factory at the time, and I couldn't find anywhere stating Mary worked, so it would seem that she was a housewife, which would have been perfectly typical for the times. Now, Arnold and Mary didn't really get along, and in fact, they were known to have some pretty good fights with each other. When Dean was born, unfortunately, Arnold didn't bother to try to hide the fact that he did not like children. Now, could the fighting have been caused from Arnold feeling like he was forced into a marriage from getting Mary pregnant? It's not out of the realm of possibility. In 1942, three-year-old Dean's younger brother, Stanley, was born. These two boys would be the only children born to Arnold and Mary. 
Arnold was described as very strict with the boys and punished them regularly, whereas Mary was said to be very protective and loving of her two sons. Dean was very shy and a very serious small child. He wanted no part of socializing with other children. It was noted, though, that he did show some level of empathy as a child, a concern for the well-being of other children. At around eight years old, Dean became ill with rheumatic fever, which went undiagnosed. So what is that? The CDC says it may develop after having strep throat or scarlet fever infection that isn't treated properly. After a week or up to a month later, the rheumatic fever can develop and it's caused by the body's immune system's response to the earlier strep throat or scarlet fever infection and causes some pretty scary inflammation in the body, but it isn't contagious. The symptoms of rheumatic fever are obviously fever, painful joints in the knees, ankles, elbows, and wrists, fatigue, jerky and uncontrollable body movements, lumps under the skin near the joints, rash, and the scariest of all, symptoms of congestive heart failure, including chest pain, shortness of breath, and fast heartbeat. The effects of this fever can result in fluid around the heart, having an enlarged heart, and developing a new heart murmur. This fever is more common in children ages 5 to 15 years old and is very rare in any other age group. And if you've had it once, you are a lot more likely to get it again if you get strep throat or scarlet fever. So what can they do for kids who get this? Again, the CDC recommends antibiotics to treat the underlying strep infections, anti-inflammatory meds, and if they develop a heart issue after, they will most likely need medical intervention for that as well. Doctors might even prescribe preventive antibiotics after for many years. And yet, Dean's parents didn't address it, but it is probably because the two were arguing to the point that they decided to get divorced around that same time. Once separated, Arnold joined the military. Now, some sources say he joined the Army, others say he joined the Air Force, well, I found his gravestone, and it says Arnold Edwin Coral, U.S. Navy, World War II. So that settles that. So Arnold joined the Navy at the end of World War II and was stationed in Tennessee. Now, Mary was actually fond of Arnold, even though their relationship was often heated. So she uprooted their sons, now seven and four, and moved from Indiana to Tennessee, close to the base, to try to keep Arnold in their lives, at least for her sons. Due to his undiagnosed illness, Dean found that he just wasn't physically able to keep up with the other kids at school for P.E., recess, or any other physical activity, so he was left out. Being a newly single parent and needing to work, Mary was forced to leave her sons with babysitters, although there have been no reports saying either boy was mistreated by a caregiver. At 10 years old, Dean had been suffering with symptoms of his illness long enough that he was finally taken to a doctor where he was officially diagnosed with a heart murmur. Symptoms of a heart murmur are chronic cough, poor appetite, heavy sweating with minimal or no exertion, shortness of breath, 
chest pain, dizziness, fainting, enlarged liver, and as well as fingertips and lips that look blue. I mean, it's no joke. Four years after the move to Tennessee, Arnold and Mary decided to make another go of it and remarried in 1950 when Dean was 11 years old. They moved from Tennessee to Pasadena, Texas, which is basically a suburb of Houston between the big city and the ocean. But the second marriage was not long-lived, and the pair divorced again in 1953 when Dean was 14 years old. Mary insisted that the boys have a continued and meaningful relationship with their father, and the two co-parented the boys together nicely by all accounts. At some point not long after this, Mary met a traveling clock salesman named Jake West, and their courtship was fast. They soon married. Then a baby daughter, Joyce, was born in 1955. It is said that Dean loved his younger siblings and was extremely protective of them, watching over them and keeping them out of trouble. Dean began high school in 1954. Living so close to the ocean afforded Dean the hobby of scuba diving, though he had to give it up after a fainting spell due to his heart condition. His peers said he loved music and showed a talent as a trombone player. He was quiet, but a polite adolescent. Dean's stepfather, Jake, and Mary started a small candy company named Pecan Prince out of the family garage. Dean and his brother worked nearly full-time hours for the little company while still going to school, and yet Dean maintained decent grades and there were no disciplinary issues whatsoever. He was still described as a bit of a loner, but this was most likely explained as him being shy. He did date girls during his teenage years, but it is thought that he was secretly gay. You see, during this time in history, it was not really acceptable to be gay. In fact, during the early 50s, the United States went through what was later called the Lavender Scare, which was basically a witch hunt for employees that might be gay. They would be interrogated by their employers and asked whether or not they'd had any homosexual experiences, and if so, they were fired. They wanted to, quote, root out LGBT plus workers. It is thought that if a federal worker, for example, was gay, then that person would be thought of as weak and much more susceptible to becoming spies or communists. It is ridiculous, of course, but still. The family candy business was actually locally successful. Dean's stepfather would sell the candy while out in his sales routes around the general Houston area. And in 1958, Dean Coral graduated from high school, just as the family uprooted and moved into Houston to open a Pecan Prince candy factory and store closer to their customer base. And that was Dean's childhood. Let's take a look. Looking at Dean's childhood might give us a small glimpse of troubled waters. According to Dr. Nicola Davies, children of divorce have an increased risk of developing psychological and behavioral problems and slightly more so if the parents get back together just to split up again. This most often causes feelings of anger and sadness in children and they push it down, which then furthers the risk of psychological and behavioral issues. 
While Mary did her best to make sure Dean and his brother had plenty of meaningful time with their father, which, quite frankly, is the right thing to do if the other parent is fit, but for whatever reason, Dean felt that he just didn't have that support system. But I still don't believe that this is any sort of reason or excuse for his later crimes. I mean, how many of us at this moment are children of divorce or separation? And yet we didn't go on to do what Dean did. Dr. Davies also stated that the physical illness Dean suffered that resulted in him being removed from school sport activities negatively impacted him. Other sources say that he was fine with not having to participate in sports due to his already underlying shyness. But I do think that if he had been physically able to do more physical activity, it might have helped him socially, but there's really no way to be sure. But having a heart murmur would certainly make him feel that he was different from the other kids, weaker than the other kids, and there's something to be said for that with regards to his methods of torture and murder, which we'll go over later. But again, there are plenty of people that have some form of disability who do not go on to be dangerous. However, As he got older and was expected to work night and day other than going to school would certainly impact him. That level of social isolation can cause a host of issues. So let's look at that. There was a study directed by the Norwegian Social Research Institute involving 4,227 adolescents between the ages of 13 and 19. They examined the extent of mental health problems among adolescents. They compared teens with and without close friends to confide in and found that a significant portion of those without a close friend reported having symptoms of depression than those who did have a close friend. With regards to girls, that went up to one in three experiencing symptoms of depression. This study also showed that experiencing social support from friends and spending spare time with friends was the strongest protective factor against mental disorders among teens. We know that being a teenager is tough. Those of you going through it now understand, and those of us that have survived, remember. It is a time of insecurity. The brain is maturing quickly and hormones are racing and therefore teens have more difficulty dealing with things that adults might find to be no issue at all. Even if Dean did not admit it to himself or at least push the feelings out of his mind, he must have come to some level of realization that he was gay. During that time, it was just not acceptable to be that way so he would have been forced to push those feelings deep down inside as well. So, in my opinion, while he was a child of divorce, his parents co-parented and he was able to spend time with both. He was shy, but there was zero indication that it was a result of some mental disturbance. The illness and subsequent heart murmur is definitely something, but again, there are others who have disabilities and go on to be normal people. While his father was described as strict, there is no indication that Dean was ever abused in any way, and he certainly was never neglected. I tried to find any indication of a possible inherited mental defect, but I could find none. Also, many of us worked quite a bit while still going to school, and while we were annoyed that we didn't have time to hang out with our friends, we turned out fine. So what are we left with? 
Let's move on. In 1960, when Dean was 21, his mother Mary asked him to move up to Indianapolis, Indiana, to help care for an elderly grandmother, so he did. While there, he became close friends with a local girl, and they spent a lot of time together. After a couple of years, she proposed marriage to him. He rejected her offer and quickly moved back to Houston to continue helping the family business. By this point, the business had been moved to Houston Heights, which is just barely northeast of the city center of Houston. It was a desirable area back then, and from what I've read, it still is. Dean settled in, getting a day job with the Houston Lighting and Power Company and working nights in the candy factory. In 1963, his mother and stepfather divorced and Mary renamed the company Coral Candy Company. Dean's intense work ethic did not go unnoticed, and girls certainly flirted with him as he was not an unattractive youth, but he didn't notice. Then, in 1964, 25-year-old Dean Coral was drafted into the Army. By this time, the Vietnam War was in full swing. He was sent to Fort Polk, Louisiana for his basic training, then sent to Fort Benning in Georgia to train as a radio repairman. He was then stationed in Fort Hood, Texas. Why he wasn't sent to Vietnam is unknown to me. His official military records showed that he was a fine soldier, but he absolutely hated it. After just under a year of service, he applied for a hardship discharge, stating he was needed for the family business, and his request was granted on June 11, 1965. He was honorably discharged. It has been said that, while he was in the military, that he came to the full realization that he was gay and had actually had his first sexual encounters with other men. Regardless, when he returned home, people who knew him noticed a change in his mannerisms and especially around teen boys. He also resumed his position as the vice president of the candy business. Now, his ex-stepfather had kept the original name of the business and therefore there was some serious competition. But business was still good and Dean worked an incredible amount of hours to keep it flourishing. He also moved into an apartment that was above the small candy factory and even put a pool table in the back of the facility and encouraged the area teens to come hang out. Dean even hosted drug parties. He was known for giving out free candy and earned the nicknames The Candy Man and The Pied Piper. At some point after that, the business then relocated directly across the street from an elementary school. The business was doing well enough that Dean and his mother were able to hire a few employees. For whatever reason, Dean began to flirt with the young men that worked there. One employee complained to Mary that Dean was making unwanted sexual advances at him, and Mary promptly fired the young man. On some level, his mother must have known that her son was gay, and she fired this youth to protect her son from both the complaint as well as the temptation. Also during this time, Dean befriended a 12-year-old boy by the name of David Owen Brooks. David was a 6th grader who wore glasses and very much enjoyed the free candy Dean gave to the area kids. David and some other kids would hang out with Dean behind the candy factory. 
David and some other kids even accompanied Dean for a ride to the beach to hang out. David would, on occasion, ask Dean for money and Dean gave it to him happily. In fact, David was beginning to look up to Dean as a sort of father figure. As time went by, Dean was even able to talk David into performing sexual acts on him for money or gifts. So after another failed relationship, Mary had had enough, decided to sell the business, take her daughter, and move to Colorado. Dean decided he would stay in Houston, got a very small apartment, and went back to work at the Houston Lighting and Power Company as an electrician. With his mother gone and no one around to keep an eye on him, Dean began to give in to his darker side. At this point, young David was now 14 years old and emotionally dependent on Dean, to the point that he rarely ever went back to his own home. David was all but living full-time with Dean. In 1969, Dean's personality seemed to change. He began displaying hypersensitive behaviors and always seemed to be depressed. He was now 30 years old. He found young male lovers to sleep with, but his desire for bondage and pain began to increase. It seemed he just needed more control. The next year, when David was 15, he dropped out of high school and moved to Beaumont, Texas with his mother. His parents had been divorced. Whenever David would visit Houston to see his father, he would visit Dean. It didn't take long for David to move back to Houston and stay with his father, but he was nearly always at Dean's apartment. Also, 1970 would be the year that Dean Coral would go past a line from which he could never return. 18-year-old Jeffrey Conan had been the salutatorian of his private Catholic high school and had just begun his freshman year of college at the University of Texas. On September 1st, 1970, he decided to hitchhike from Austin, Texas to Houston to visit his girlfriend. He made it as far as the uptown area of Houston. What happened next can only be speculation, but it is likely that Dean saw Jeffrey and offered him a ride to Jeffrey's parents' house, and he must have accepted. Dean lived very near where Jeffrey had been last seen. What we know happened to Jeffrey is that Dean made him take his clothes off. He then put a cloth gag in his mouth, tied his hands and feet together, they believe he was sexually assaulted and then manually strangled until he died. Dean then took the body he had wrapped in plastic to High Island Beach, dug a hole, put lime on his body, buried it, then put a large boulder over it. Not long after, young David walked in on Dean, who had two teen boys tied to a four-poster bed. Dean was naked and sexually assaulting the youths. David was shocked, but Dean begged him to remain silent and offered to buy him a car. David agreed, and Dean later bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. After that, Dean offered to pay David $200 for every boy he brought to his apartment. On December 13, 1970, David approached 14-year-old James Glass and Danny Yates at a religious rally being held near Dean's apartment. 
David asked the boys if they wanted to hang out and drink beer. One of the boys had been to Dean's apartment before, so they both agreed. Once they entered the apartment and got settled, Dean overpowered them, cuffed them to his torture board, which was a wood plank with holes drilled into it and ropes and handcuffs attached, then raped and tortured the boys before strangling them. He and David then took the bodies and buried them beneath a boat shed that Dean had recently rented. Six weeks later, Dean and David were out driving and saw teenaged brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking to a bowling alley. They pulled over and offered booze and drugs to the boys and they got in the vehicle. Dean then drove to his apartment where they were tied to that board and met the same fate as the previous two boys their bodies buried in that boat shed. Between March and May of 1971, Dean and David lured three more teen victims to the apartment where they were tortured, raped, strangled, and buried under the boat shed. After, Dean moved into a house so that he would have a bit more privacy. Then from August through September, he kidnapped tortured, raped, and murdered three more teen boys. One boy, 15-year-old Randall Harvey, was abducted while riding his bike to his part-time job at a gas station. He was shot and killed with a single bullet to the head. 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney was walking home from a movie in August when David indicated to Dean that he knew him. They stopped and lured Reuben into the vehicle and took him back to Dean's place where he was also raped, tortured, and murdered, then buried in the boat shed. At this point, parents of the missing teen boys were frantically looking for their children. The police became involved and an area teen, 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, who had been best friends with one of the victims, volunteered to pass out missing persons posters, offering a reward for information. There just was no information out there for the police to go on. Now, David knew who Elmer Wayne Henley was already. When they met up, David offered to take him to Dean's house and Henley agreed. But for some unknown reason, Dean decided not to kill Henley. Instead, he offered him the same deal that David got, $200 for every boy he could bring to Dean's place. And just as curious and disappointing, Henley eventually agreed, later stating it was due to his family being in a serious financial situation. Dean explained that he was part of a white slavery ring out of Dallas, which was not true, of course. In February 1972, Henley lured 17-year-old William Branch to Dean's home, saying they would be drinking beer and getting high. Once in the home, Henley exited the room and left him alone with Dean. William was later found buried in the boat shed. His genitalia had been removed. A month later, as 18-year-old Frank Aguirre was leaving the restaurant he worked at, he was approached by Dean, David, and Henley. Frank recognized Henley as they all invited him over to Dean's place to smoke some weed. Frank got in the car, and once there, they began getting high. Dean then jumped Frank and handcuffed his hands behind his back and gagged him. 
Henley asked Dean not to harm Frank, but Dean refused to stop, and once he was done with him, David and Henley helped Dean bury Frank's body at High Island Beach, where Dean had buried his first victim. The next victim fought viciously for his life once the trio jumped him, but once he saw David pointing a gun at him, the boy gave up. He was tied to the torture board to meet the same fate as the others and was also buried at High Island Beach. At some point, it is said that Henley and Dean jumped David, tied him to the board, raped and tortured him, but allowed him to live, and yet David continued to help Dean get victims. Victim after victim, boy after boy, was lured into Dean's home, where they were met with unspeakable acts of cruelty and inhumane savagery. Then, starting in June of 1973, Dean's kill count began to rise drastically. Along with an increase in murders, also came a sharp increase in brutality. When Dean went any amount of time without a boy, David and Henley stated that he would pace like a caged animal, chain-smoking and throwing his arms around wildly. Dean also began keeping his victims for longer periods of time, often days. He moved where he buried the bodies to Lake Sam Rayburn. The next month, David, who had a pregnant fiancé, left to go get married, so Henley was left to work with Dean alone. One of the victims Henley and Dean were able to get was the brother of one of his previous victims. In August 1973, Dean would kill his last victim, 13-year-old James Dremala. James was riding his bike in Pasadena when he was approached by David and Dean in Dean's car. They told the youth that they were collecting glass bottles for the refund to make money, and James went along with them. Once back at Dean's house, he was treated no better than the victims before him. Even David later said that he had shared a pizza with the boy who was small and blonde before Dean attacked him. Four days after killing James, on the evening of August 7th, Henley lured 19-year-old Timothy Curley to Dean's house. They drank beer and huffed paint until midnight when they decided to go get something to eat. While out, Timothy indicated he wanted to go pick up a mutual friend of theirs, Rhonda Williams. Rhonda was having a very tough time at home with her mean father and was very upset that her boyfriend, Frank, had just disappeared. Rhonda agreed to go with the young men to Dean's house to drink and smoke some weed. As they settled in, Dean sat and watched all three of them closely, and then all three passed out. He was angry that Henley had brought a girl with him. Very angry. When Henley woke up, he was face down on his stomach and Dean was handcuffing him. He realized his mouth had been taped shut and his ankles were tied as well. He looked over to see Timothy and Rhonda both bound and gagged. Timothy was also naked. Once Dean realized Henley was awake, he removed the tape from his mouth and said that he was going to kill all three of them after he had his fun with Timothy. Dean then began to kick Rhonda in the chest. 
Dean then dragged Henley into the next room, put a gun to his stomach, and said he was going to shoot him. Henley was somehow able to calm Dean down and promised to help him torture and murder the other two. So Dean took the handcuffs off Henley. According to an interview Rhonda granted the Houston Press, Wayne leaned down to Rhonda and whispered that everything would be all right, that he would get her out of there. As Dean and Henley walked in and out of the room, Rhonda told Tim that she was told everything would be okay. Just then, Dean dragged Tim into the bedroom. Not long after, Rhonda could hear Tim screaming as Henley was pacing back and forth in the living room. Dean had instructed Henley to bring Rhonda back into the bedroom so that Henley could rape her while Dean was doing the same to Tim. But Henley made up the excuse that she was too heavy to lift, though she was a small girl that he could have easily carried. Dean entered the room, took Rhonda into the bedroom, and tied her to the torture board. She remembered that there was plastic sheeting underneath it. Dean stripped naked and ordered Henley to cut her clothes off. Tim could be heard screaming for help and for God, but none heard him. Rhonda, on the other hand, didn't scream because the abuse she endured from her own father taught her to be silent. She asked Henley, Is this for real? To which Henley told her it was. She said, quote, Well, are you going to do anything about it? End quote. Henley began looking desperately around the room and noticed that Dean had set his gun down on the dresser. Wayne grabbed the gun, pointed it at Dean, and shouted, You've gone far enough, Dean. Dean jumped off the teen boy he was raping and began walking toward Henley, saying, Kill me, Wayne. You won't do it. Wayne shot Dean in the head, but the bullet didn't pierce through the skull. Continuing to come at him, Henley shot Dean five more times, killing him. Henley then freed the two teens, who immediately got dressed and called the police. When the police got there, the three teens were outside, waiting on the porch. Henley stated that he was the one that killed Dean. Now, Timothy would later say that, just before the cops got there, Henley had told him, quote, If you weren't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you, end quote. The three teens were arrested and taken to the station while the police tried to grasp what they were dealing with. Then, while questioning Henley, the whole story began to come to light. He told them how Dean had killed these boys and recalled where the burial sites were. The police recognized several of the names as missing boys from around the area and the picture kept getting more and more clear. Searching Dean's house found the torture board, and there are pictures of it if you Google it. Nylon rope, a large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic, eight pair of handcuffs, thin glass tubes used for sexual torture. There was also evidence of a torture area in the back of Dean's van he drove. When Henley began pointing out where the bodies were buried, the authorities were just not prepared for what they discovered. As they began to unearth the boys, they found them in varying stages of decomposition. Some had been shot, most had been strangled with the ligatures still around their necks. So disclaimer, disclaimer for this next part, because it is brutal. I am warning you. 
Every single one of the victims had been sodomized and visibly sexually tortured. Genitals with bite marks, random objects shoved into their bottoms, glass rods inserted into the urethra, then smashed, tape over their mouths, castration with those remains in separate plastic bags. On August 8th, David Brooks turned himself in and immediately denied taking part in any of the murders, which of course they knew was nonsense. After Henley and Brooks took the authorities to the various burial sites, the body count was at 28. 28 teenage boys who suffered. One cannot even take a moment to try to understand how they suffered and were killed, and not all of them could ever be positively identified. Henley and David were both sent to trial in San Antonio. Both were convicted of murder and sentenced and will never be allowed parole. What makes this case so very disturbing is the fact that we don't know why Dean turned out this way. Here's a boy who was born to a very loving and protective mother, a strict father, but again, there has been no indication that he suffered any level of abuse or neglect. In fact, he maintained a relationship with his father after his parents divorced into adulthood. I mean, sure, he was shy and described as a loner, but at the same time, everyone that knew him, from teachers to peers, said he was quite pleasant and concerned for the well-being of others. There was no head trauma, no family history of mental illness, literally nothing that could have, at the very least, point us in a direction of a reason why he was so evil. He was gay and alive during a time when it wasn't okay to be. We can all sympathize with him there, but there were so many others having to live the lie back then, and none of them were violent or dangerous whatsoever. So what happened? Dean Coral was a sexual sadist who got off on the violent, aggressive sexual assault of others, inflicting horrible pain. I've done a podcast on sexual sadism, and I'll put a link to it in the notes if you're interested. We know he was able to talk two teenage boys into being his accomplices, and how could he have possibly gotten them to agree to help him in the most evil endeavor? Some would say it was Stockholm Syndrome, which is a psychological response where a captive begins to identify closely with their captors, along with their agenda and demands. But David and Henley weren't captured. They hadn't been kidnapped. They were groomed, certainly, but old enough to know torture and murder was wrong and when offered $200 a person. And nearly all of the victims were not strangers to these boys. They were at least acquaintances with nearly all of them. I mean... I'm at a loss, folks. This is one of the most horrific and brutal series of murders in American history. Since Dean himself was murdered, we've had no opportunity to ask him why, what his motives were, or what sparked this level of depravity. David and Henley, in my opinion, had no excuse for being accomplices unless they too had some underlying issues. But tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, as always, thank you so much for listening. 
because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 